Kia ora, welcome to episode 2 of The Good Oil, Conversations with Aotearoa Painters. In this episode, I visit Sir Graham Sidney at his home and studio in the Cambrian Valley in the Maniototo, Central Otago. In over 50 years of practice, Graham has made a huge contribution to New Zealand art, receiving a knighthood in 2021 reflecting that contribution. His work is held widely in public and private collections including Te Papa, Auckland Art Gallery Toi Otamaki, Christchurch Art Gallery Te Puna o Waifitu, the Dunedin Public Art Gallery and the Ballin Collection. I know this is a bit presumptuous doing this so early in the life of this podcast, but the conversation with Graham was a long one. With it being so entertaining and interesting, I've decided to present all of it, but split into two episodes. In this, part one, you'll hear Graham talk about his early years and discovering Central Otago, his miserable move to London, establishing his practice, agonising over if $200 was too much to try to sell a painting for, his close proximity to so much of New Zealand contemporary art history, including encounters with Derek Ball, Ralph Hotary, Geoffrey Harris, Brent Wong, Colin McCann, Michael Smither, and Peter Webb, and the bewildering experience of security not letting him into his first Auckland exhibition because he didn't have a ticket. If you're a cat, please note this episode does include dogs barking. I started by asking Graham about his childhood. Uh, I was born in Dunedin in 1948, and youngest of three in a family. Um, my brother and sister were both f- at five years separation from me, so I was um, I was a, a sort of autumn leaf child, um, probably unexpected, and in a very comfortable family on the hill overlooking Dunedin. Uh, on the Kew Hill. We looked one way out of our dining room out to St Clair Beach and St Kilda Beach and across the flats of Dunedin, South Dunedin Flats, and then from my bedroom that I, that I lived and worked in until I was about 22, um, I looked right down the harbour and across the city and I could see Tyro ahead in the distance. Uh, the peninsula was there for me all the time. Um, so a very supportive family, um, a very supportive neighbourhood, in fact. The whole street was like a village. They'd all bought their sections in 1938-39, all built their houses at the same time. All young marrieds, all had their children at a similar time. So I was born into a community of aunties and uncles, really. Hmm. And every house was um, as open door as my own. So we spent all of our playtime after school and school holidays, etc., um, in and out of each other's houses and families. With some exposure to, to uh, art, presumably, in that community? Not in the house. Um, there, were, there were stories of... My father um, was born in East End of London, youngest of ten, and his the firstborn in Dad's family was a was a male Uncle George, and then there were eight girls, and then there was Dad, and they were very creative. Hmm. They were, although it was a, a poor family in one sense. My grandfather, 
that I never met, of course. Um, worked on the Tilbury Docks. But they were people who played pianos, and my Uncle George wanted to be a cartoonist and was a very dab hand. And I can remember Uncle George coming to spend a, a summer with us, a summer holiday with us at Karatani when I was about five, and watching Uncle George draw cartoon faces. And it absolutely thrilled me. I, I thought it was pure magic. And I wanted to be Uncle George, really. I wanted to be able to draw like Uncle George. You know, we would say to him, um, draw, draw someone being angry, Uncle George, and, and sort of unbelievably on the page at the end of this pencil, uh, an angry face would appear. I just thought it was wonderful. And that, that was a very early influence, um, wanting to be a cartoonist. So I spent huge amounts of time copying Disney comics and, you know, I, I was the best in the neighbourhood really at Donald Duck and, and Mickey Mouse because I drew them all the time. So that was that was starting point of actually applying uh, Simone's skill to a pencil or... Yeah, I think so. And being youngest by such a margin, my parents were very indulgent. I was incredibly spoiled and I was given every opportunity and every material and... The dining room table um, was never used for eating. It was it was where I did stuff, you know, and it was a it was an encouragement, a sort of constant presence of um, encouragement to make things, whether it was on paper or whether it was models or plastic models or plaster models and all those things. We were making things all the time. So that sense of creativity was there pretty pretty early. Yeah. Yeah, although not identified as creativity, it was just making things. Hmm. And, you know, my, my grandfather on my mum's side was a builder. So I used to love going down to Grandad's workshop and the smell of the shavings and the, the tools and the wood and the sawdust and so on. And I, and I very, at a very young age, I had my own workbench in the cellar and would make things out of wood. You know, it was always, it didn't matter what it was, we were, it was making stuff. And that was just a natural part of life. When you weren't playing sport, you were, there was no TV, of course. This was in the 50s. Yeah. Um, when you weren't outside playing, bowling, bowling cricket balls into the garage and this sort of thing, or playing with the kids on the street, um, you were making things, you were doing things. Mm. Pretty different. Dunedin, obviously not that far from, from central Otago, mm. you're, which needless to say we'll end up talking about a little bit today, understatement. Um, first, first memories of coming into this part of the country? We had a, a holiday house, a second house. My father's dream was always to, to have a second house for the family. And we, Dad bought a house in Karatani off my grandfather, the builder. And we used to go there every weekend, go up on a Friday night. It was only an hour and a half away, but it was a sort of hour and a half of car sickness <laughs> on the old North Road. There were particular spots where regularly we knew we would get out and throw up <laughs> um, on the long journey to Karatani, 30 miles north of Dunedin. But as the, um, as the roads into Central got better and cars got better, Quite a number of our neighbourhood aunties and uncles bought land or, or um, built cribs, 
South Island cribs, mm. North Island batches. Cheap, cheap things. A step up from a tent. Mm. A step up from a caravan. Summer, summer batches, really. They started buying in Arrowtown. And we hung on to Karatani, which was sort of coastal and damp and just like Dunedin. But it was close. Um, however, we could go there easily at weekends and, and school holidays and so on. But you very seldom got a tan, for example. <laughs> you stayed pasty, white and ghostly. Um, but I loved Karatani. I had a rowing boat there and we used to explore the peninsula and I fished and that constantly. Um, but then the, the, the focus shifted into central as the roads and cars got better and neighbours started going there and buying things. And I had invitations from one or two of those neighbours to go and spend some summer holiday time with them in their Aratown houses. And I, it's an absolutely crystal clear memory for me, this notion of driving, of being driven into Central on a Friday night, uh, you know, with the stars and so on, and then getting into the gorges and thinking you're going to throw up yet again, <laughs> um, trying not to. And then waking up on a Saturday morning in this other world, which was a world of, in summer, shimmering heat and dry, brittle, golden grass, bleached. It had this wonderful gold history, which seemed very close. Um, it was just a foreign country, and I loved it. I loved it instantly. Mm. And I went there with friends and other families as frequently as I could and put on the pressure at home for mum and dad to sell Karatani. But we then got into the habit of going to Aratown as many weekends as possible when, when there wasn't golf for dad. And sometimes when there was, we tried to do both. And then um, school holidays... Uh, Mum used to take us and we would spend the six weeks there virtually uh, through the summer and then started when we started skiing probably around about age 14 going to Coronet and and then eventually Cadrona opened and we were based at the house and in the May holidays there was snow in the May holidays can you believe it um, so it, it became a beloved place for me. And the drive from Dunedin through, we came the Roxburgh way. We never came the Pigroot way. We, it was Milton, Roxburgh, Alexandra, Cromwell, up to Aratan. That became a drive, um, the sort of equivalent of, um, of flying out of England and, and into some exotic place in Europe. It was, um, it always felt like that to me. And although I was only sort of looking out the window, I was very aware that this landscape was so unlike the coast and how much I loved it. And that's never changed. I've always felt that, mm. that it's a foreign, different land. And that's partly why these days it disappoints me so much that it's becoming... Um, so like so many other places for various reasons, which we'll probably touch on later. Mm. But um, 
Aratown to a young teenager, you know, late 1950s, early 1960s, at intermediate school, um, at primary school, and etc. That was a wonderful place to go. And so it was so inevitable that you're always going to end up uh, living back here? By choice. I always hoped to. Mm. Wasn't sure how I was going to manage it. Um, so, it's, yeah, so how did you end up managing it? Well, I painted all through my 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 love of painting and the sort of magic of of doing things on paper and and with paint grew steadily really through encouragement and opportunity there was a neighborhood lady marge Mearns, one of the one of the neighborhood mums auntie marge who took a saturday morning class for some of us kids and and i've got paintings still mum kept everything of course and i've got Paintings I did with Auntie Marge in her Saturday morning class, dated 1956. Um, she taught taught us watercolour, us, you know, half a dozen neighbourhood kids, give the mums and dads a, a spell from us. Um, a little bit of income for her. And I just kept, my my love of it kept growing, really, through encouragement and through praise and through extraordinary opportunity being offered. Um, did I want to go to a Saturday morning class? There was one on offer at the Tech. And, you know, I'd always say yes if I, if I didn't have cricket teams to play or something. Um, and then I had a couple of years with H.V. Miller in his studio at the far end, the other end of Dunedin, and learned, gradually learned some of the necessary some of the essentials about observation and about tone and about color limitation and things like that. The, the basic crafty things that you can teach. And it sounds like you were learning that quite, quite young. I mean, yeah, you were talking I think about so. teenagers. Mm, oh, yeah. Being a teenager, really. Yeah. Mm. There, was, there was art at the intermediate school at McAndrew, but there was no art department at all at my high school. Um, so I was doing all of this stuff on my own, in my bedroom, really, and sometimes being guided by the likes of H.V. Miller. But after two years, he, he gave up on me. He said, there's, there's not much more I can do for you. But he stayed in touch with letter writing and offering me books and things like that. And by that stage, um, also a very interesting thing had happened. I was, a, at the age of 15, I was, um, I think, the youngest ever art artist member of the Otago Art Society. That, that's what the art world was then. It was art societies mm. and framing shops. You know, there weren't dealers then. Um, so you were in the art society, and the art society heavyweights were my gods, really. I thought they were the, the pinnacle. That's what you wanted to try and be. And um, at, at age 15, I was in the Art Society and showing in, regularly in, in Art Society exhibitions these paintings that I was doing at home and in my, in my bedroom upstairs. And some of those seniors were very kind to me. They were very encouraging. And 
I still thought that they were what you were trying to be. You're trying to get get onto their level of, of um, achievement and, and sort of local fame. And then at school, so, so it was a very parochial local vision, really. And then at school, I um, met a guy who was a year younger than me. Mr. Miller actually told me about him because he was doing a different class with H.V. Miller than, to the one I was. And there was this guy a year behind me at school who was also painting with H.V. With Miller and going to his classes. And he showed me a painting by him and I was absolutely stunned by it. I thought it was unbelievably good. And I wanted to meet this kid, you know, this upstart who was obviously a whole lot better than me. And um, this was Ross Jenner. And I know it embarrasses Ross for me to talk like this, but he, he, was, um, he was deeply immersed in classical art, the Renaissance and so on, which I knew nothing about. Absolutely nothing. hadn't occurred to me. I knew about local art. Um, the local New Dunedin painters, the, the, the big names Dunedin, you know, Shona McFarlane, Tom Esplin, Harry Miller, Frank Gross, Els Nordhoff, people like this. Yeah. They were the stars of the art society. But Ross was, uh, here he was, in, his dad was a GP. They had a, a, a rather grand home in, in Musselburgh Rise with a library in it. And in this library there were art books. Well, there weren't any art books about New Zealand art, really. Peter McIntyre and Doug Badcock were just beginning to be published by Reeds. Otherwise they simply hadn't been published at all. New Zealand art books, Not they didn't really, exist. No, mm. no there, was, there was the art, arts journal from you know, the 1930s and 40s, but no one knew about that. Um, I certainly didn't know about that. But here was Ross with a um, with a library of, of paintings from the 14th, 15th, 16th century and 17th century Dutch. And I was absolutely stunned by this discovery. And Ross only wanted to be like them. He wanted to be a, a 17th century Dutch painter. And he already was at the age of about 15 or 16. And here was me wanting to be an Otago Art Society painter. And I, it, was a, it was a sort of shock, really. And how different painting could be? Yeah, what was, what was possible. Mm. And how much I didn't know. So from a... Because it, it's fair to say perhaps that more classic style of painting is something you've aspired to. Mm. Um, that, that was embedded at a pretty early age. Yeah, probably 15, 16. Mm. Um, until then, I was being Shona McFarlane, mm. and you know the, the, all the paintings that Mum kept will show you that I was getting quite good at being Shona McFarlane. <laughs> but um, the moment I saw seventeenth-century Dutch painting, for example, I just wanted to be like that, and that hasn't changed. That's never changed. Mm. Not really. Mm. I still think it's the most beautiful and the most astonishing and the most memorable. And it's what I love most, I think. Um, so, you know, this is courtesy of, of a guy who was in, in King's High School uniform a year, a year younger than me. And we became very good mates and we 
we um, used each other as models and we hired models together because that's what you did if yeah. you were if you were going to be a an academic you know European artist and not a not a Dunedin, South Dunedin art society boy. Mm. And we did a lot together for three or four years until he went off to architecture school, which which was really what I wanted to do, but I couldn't do the maths that was required, so I was stuffed on that front. So I had to resort just to being a painter. And Ross went on and has had a wonderful career as an academic uh, in the architecture school. Mm. But he was a wonderful painter, and, and the, the Jenner environment was hugely influential on me. Um, as I say, I think Ross finds it embarrassing to, that I talk about it like that. Yeah. But I don't, I, I cannot underrate the influence that had. You know, in the Sydney household, it was it was everything to do with local, and in the Jenner household, he had a brother Edward who who wanted to be T. S. Eliot, for example. Well, the Sydney household wouldn't have known who the hell T. S. Eliot was. It was just a different world. Mm. And it was wonderful for me to discover. If we fast forward to uh, your first show, so 1972, mm -hmm. how did that show come about? Well, um, although I was increasingly besotted with painting and wanting to be good and um, relishing the praise that came my way, um, it was obvious in the late or in the middle of the 1960s when I was at high school that I wasn't going to be an architect um, because of the maths problem. Mm. And there was no way really, there was no career path for being a, for being a full-time painter unless you wanted to be one of the lucky ones who was catering for the, for the tourist and middle-class school, which, which was starting to support the Peter McIntyres and the um, Duncan Derricks at Mount Cook and Doug Badcock in Queenstown and Charles McKenzie and people like that, mm. they were making a living selling um, scenic grandeur, the Southern Alps, Austin Deans. Um, they were forging a way to survive, and in McIntyre's case very successfully because of the publications. Colin Wheeler was teaching it. Waitaki boys, as he did all his life, but doing these books on sheep stations of South Island, etc. I didn't want to be one of those, because that that looked to art society. I was my sights were on being um, a seventeenth century, eighteenth century European painter, classical, the, the academies, etc. And therefore, I had to, you know, more than more than a polite suggestion from Dad and Mum, you know, I had to have something to fall back on, son. Mm. You'd better go to university and get a degree. And, you know, if you can find a way to, to keep being a painter, well and good, but nobody is. You know, everyone else. The major names in New Zealand painting in the 19, early 1960s, the, the ones that are the major names now, were still part-timers. Mm. They were doing other things and so, painting when they could. So the idea that art could be a career mm. is quite... Very fun. remote from, from middle-class Dunedin. Mm. Yeah. And, and unrealistic, really, in New Zealand. 
Um, and I didn't want to be painting the Remarkables with ducks flying by, uh, you know, every second day of the, my life. Um, so I went to university and did English and geography and had the great good fortune of being there at the time when the Francis Hodgkins Fellowship began. Um, Tanya Ashkin, no, no, Illingworth was the first one. He would have been about 1966 or 65. And then the sculptor Tanya Ashkin came, John Drawbridge's wife. And then Ralph, uh, Derek Ball came in 67 or so when I was a student. He was young. He wasn't much older than me. He was in his mid-twenties. Mm. He came as a painter and left as a sculptor that year. And these, the Hodgkins Fellowship at Dunedin meant, at Otago, meant that they had a, a dedicated studio. They were given a room. They were given a studio. And the, the basis of it was that they were available for students to go and talk to and watch and so on and be there amongst the student life. And this is my first exposure to full-timers. Here were lucky people being full-time painters. Derek Ball was very kind and very welcoming to me, and I started spending huge amounts of time watching Derek paint and talking to him and so on. This is me being an English student and him being a full-time painter, deep envy on my part. And then Ralph Hotary came and he had two years on it and he made a room available for Ross Jenner and I to hire a model on a Saturday afternoon, ah. which we did. Um, paid her $4 an hour, $2 each. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, a single bar heater against Dunedin's cold, so, so the poor model was um, basically frozen solid, I would say. Um, a fine Dunedin tradition, a single bar heater. Exactly, yeah, mm. well, welcome to student life. Um, and then following Ralph, uh, Michael Smither came in 1970, by which time I was at Teachers College in Christchurch because mm. I decided that teaching at least would give me long holidays to be a painter. And um, I'd been on a bursary anyway, so I had two years to pay off. Um, but these guys coming on the Hodgkins Fellowship meant exposure to people who were painting full-time, all day, every day. And I could talk to them and pick their brains and watch them. And they were, to a man, they were very generous and kind. And the names you've mentioned are an incredibly diverse range of practices. Mm -hmm. So a lot of different elements to learn from. Yeah. And to watch. And, and Ralph and Michael, I think in Ralph's second year, he brought Geoffrey Harris down from Christchurch, who was a young teenager that they had discovered who, who was a natural sort of um, outsider artist. And... Here was this frizzy-haired, young, shy guy, not, uh, almost exactly the same age as me, and I knew he was a real painter. Mm. He couldn't do anything else. And it was, it was strange stuff. It was so unlike mine. You know, here's me all sort of tight and limited and academic and uh, realist and so on, and here's Jeffrey, very expressionist and, and almost primitive, but very distinctive and... Um, I knew he was real, whereas I felt like a pretender. 
I felt like I was having to learn to be a painter, whereas I thought he was a natural one. He couldn't be anything else. Um, and having people like that in, in my orbit as a student was really hugely helpful because it, it sort of elevated ambition. And it meant that while I was a student and then while I was teaching for two years in Cromwell, went back into central Otago because that was a way of me getting back to central. I could go and work there as a teacher. I painted whenever I could hmm. after writing essays and having to do the reading and lesson planning and God knows what. I painted constantly. So, With a view to wanting to have a show yeah, at some point? Yeah. yeah. Um, the aforementioned Shona McFarlane, who, who was by that stage running a gallery in Dunedin called the Moray Gallery, which was mainly a framing shop, but she did occasional shows. She had encouraged me to, to keep hold of work and she would do a show for me in November, December 1972, which was at the end of my two years of high school teaching. And, um, I, you know, it went very well. Um, yeah, what, what were your expectations of the show? You thought, well, great, I get to put some paintings up on the wall and we'll see what happens? Or... Yeah, yeah, I'd already um, had the opportunity, you know, I was sort of growing beyond the art society by that stage, and it was, you know, late teens, early twenties at this age, at this stage. Um, and a woman called Maureen Hitchings had opened a dealer gallery, the first real dealer gallery in Dunedin, underneath Dawson's Jewelers. And it was called Dawson's Downstairs Gallery. And Maureen had connections with some of the really interesting names that were, were sort of flying beyond the art society level, just starting to emerge. Some of those names you've mentioned already? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. And at this same stage, two things worth mentioning. Number one, in the, in the library at Otago University, the Hocken collection was housed, and Maureen Hitching's husband, Michael, ran it initially, and then he was replaced by Tim Garrity. But there were paintings everywhere from the Hocken collection, ah. including, for example, on the stairwell, I'll never forget, a, a beautiful Brent Wong painting. And I could draw it for you right now, I know it off by heart. But there were all sorts of paintings spread around Otago University Library. And, I, and you could go in to see Michael and see Tim Garrity at the Hocken, and they'd pull out racks with paintings that weren't art society. They were something more. Charlton Edgar, the Mona Edgar collection was up there. And this was radically different stuff. Really. Well, I, mean, I imagine that Brent Wong was a strange painting to encounter. Oh, exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. And... <laughs> That's thunder. That's <laughs> um, are they okay doing that? Yeah, for for uh, for listener context, we're sitting in Graham's studio with a couple of dogs, yeah. and it's thundering outside. And it's thundering outside, <laughs> much to the consternation of the dogs. Um, I think in my in about 1968 
which would have been at the end of my second year as a sort of sullen English student, ploughing through English literature and classics and what have you. Over the summer break, they employed Colin McCann to do a mural. And he did a waterfalls mural, and I watched him do it. And it was quite contentious, really. It was very big. And this stuff, it's hard now to talk about how different it was mm. to, to the sort of tepid, um, still-life landscape watercolours of the art societies. And um, I gradually became aware of this world, thanks to Ross Jenner and books and so on, and people like the Hodgkins Fellows, of this extraordinarily deep, rich vein beyond local. And all through my student days and te then teaching days, I kept painting in my spare time. So I suddenly had a lot of work and Shona said, let's do a show and we'll see how it goes. And it was it sold out. Mainly thanks to family and neighbours, you know, they all sort of bought things. And the most expensive painting in it was $160. And I remember Shona putting that price on it. It was a bit of a self-portrait. It was me in, a, in the world I was living in at the time, a painting called Julie and I, 1972. And um, Julie was a girlfriend, a sort of correspondence girlfriend, which was about as close as I got to any females at that point. <laughs> Um, and Shona said it was going to be $160, and I said, You'll, that's ridiculous, you know, no one will ever pay that much for a painting. Anyway, they, there were several people queuing up for it on the, when the day came. And watercolours were sort of $30, and drawings were 15 but the whole thing sold out. And much that, to your surprise? Yep, absolutely, I'll say. Although I'd had sales at the Art Society, mm. but... Um, and a couple of my teachers at high school, one in particular, Reg Graham, he, he bought paintings off me when I was, when I was at high school, hmm. um, just to encourage me, really. And um, here's a sellout show in November 1972, and I thought, I'm away. I'm into it. I can be a full-time painter. So within a couple of months, I had left New Zealand and gone to England in order to become a full-time painter. With a plan to remain in England? Yeah, ah. because I thought there wasn't much chance of me surviving in, in New Zealand with such a small population. Mm. Um, the, the, the habit, the tradition was for New Zealanders, if you wanted to be a real painter, you went overseas. And so I did. So seeing, seeing work, European work, masters, mm. for the first time, presumably, mm -hmm. ha had to have had a, an impact as well. Yeah, although Dunedin Art Gallery had a lot of really good paintings, mm. um, thanks to Dunedin's extraordinarily um, wealthy beginnings with gold. And William Hodgkins, uh, you know, started the Dunedin Art Gallery, and there'd been a lot of very good purchases made. Um, which meant you could see real things, but nothing like what you could see in books. 
and then I chugged off to to England with a, with a mate from um, Teachers College, thinking that I would never come back, that I would be a painter in England all, all my life from that point on, and it was a, it was completely uh, mistaken. It was a terrible failure. I was homesick almost from the from the minute the the boat left Auckland Harbour. Without anticipating that? No, I didn't have any... No, no, I was full of ambition. Mm. Um, and I thought I'd never see my parents again sort of thing. Um, but it's what I wanted to do. And the moment I got there and had so little money, um, had to do very menial work, to survive in London, living in a flat full of Kiwis, um, earning twenty pounds a week, being a, a bus a driver of a of a furniture removals van, and um, then a lifesaver at a brand new swimming pool in Tottenham, and then a primary school teacher with my sister for a while, and then a, then a secondary school teacher had to resort to that. It didn't sound like there was much time for painting. There's none. No, I didn't have any money. I couldn't. I mean, if you're going to survive to be a painter, you've got to have time. So, what do you live on when you're not earning? I had nothing. So the whole exercise was a terrible disaster. So, so return to New Zealand within a year or no, eighteen months. But not a disaster in one very important sense. Um, Realising where I belonged, I felt like a foreigner in England, even though Dad had been born in London. Um, I had absolutely no sense of connection there and I used to think about and dream about home all the time. That was really critical. I didn't realise how important but that what was really happening was me realising where I belonged and what would become the focus of, of my work really. Um, it was dreams, it, literally it was dreams of Central Otago. I was depressed a lot of the time, I'm quite sure. Uh, living alone, uh, often in a bed sit, terribly miserable mm. and hardly able to draw and mm. not wanting to draw. The only things I painted were things like a still life of roses in a vase which I sent home for my mother's birthday. Um, it had nothing to do with where I was. And it was critical, really, because it made me realise that I was a New Zealander and that I was a South Islander and that I was a Southern South Islander. And that's all I wanted to be. So home then around 1974? May 1974. Mm. But, but stuck to the plan of, of, of becoming a dedicated painter. Still believed in that. Still dreamed of it. Mm. But enabled by my parents, um, miserably writing letters home, you know, two letters a week sort of thing, home, sort of absolutely oozing self-pity <laughs> and um, hating, the, hating almost everything about where I was, except being able to go to the galleries and see real paintings. And, make notes about why I thought they were good. What makes, you know, I used to go to, into the National Gallery and pick a painting in, that had stopped me 
and make notes in a little red notebook about why I thought it was so good. What makes this so great? Why is this appealing to me so much? Whereas the one beside it isn't. So I made, I filled in a notebooks. So they, they, they must have been stand-ins for a formal education because, because yeah. no formal art training. No. So that, that was the, as I say, the starting point or of, of an education or a next level well, of the, education? The Jenner Library was the starting point because mm. I started reading and um, reading about other artists and reading treatises on on Renaissance techniques and all that sort of thing. I wanted to learn how did, how did they do this? How, how were they, why were they so good? I hardly thought about the themes. It was all technical at that point. It was basically learning the craft. Um, but, I mean, this is, what was I, tw early 20s. Um, these letters home, I think, finally got too much for mum and dad, the, the sort of weekly onslaught of, of gloom and depression from me in London. Um, and they said, look, <laughs> we've, we've had enough. <laughs> Why don't you come home and we'll support you for a year? You can go back to your bedroom, where you, which was my studio upstairs, and we'll give you free board and lodging. And you can become, you can be a painter full-time. You'll have to work dad's hours. If you're going to be a full-timer, you're going to work proper hours. There's no shirking. And we'll see what happens. And that was good enough for me. Um, I came home with no money whatsoever. I spent my last seven dollars, I remember, in Singapore. I bought a Sansui AU101 amplifier. That's <laughs> <laughs> all, I, all I wanted because I was going to be playing music in my bedroom. So. Yeah. Um, I had no money. Dad met, met me at, at, um, at Littleton. And all the way home on the, on the ship, I flew to, what is it? I flew to Singapore and then got on a boat and came from Singapore through Fremantle and, and Sydney and across to Wellington on this cheap boat. And everyone on it was buying Foster's Lager for a dollar a can. I had no bloody money. And <laughs> probably you know, going probably just the, as well. Going through the tropics, you know, I was absolutely you know, parched that I had no, no dough. This is no exaggeration. I literally had no money. And um, they were all glugging down Foster's and I, was, I could only watch. Anyway, only watching was pretty much habit for me in all sorts of phases of life, to be honest. Um, so here, here's me arriving home and mum and dad saying, OK, you've got a year and we'll see what happens. And we had a plan, that which was um, at the end of the first year, I would have a show in Dunedin and hopefully it would do well. And on the basis of that success, I would then be invited miraculously to have a show in Christchurch. And after another year, that might do well. And possibly I'd then get Wellington in the third year. And I'd gradually work my way up to Auckland, which was obviously the, the most important place. And how much of that plan came together? Um, none. <laughs> um, so I started within a few days of coming home. Um, I started this routine of keeping Dad's hours. He would wake me up in the morning, as he'd always done anyway, 
and we'd had breakfast together downstairs in the kitchen, silently reading, handing half the newspaper to each other, not saying a word. And he would go out the door to be an accountant, which is what he was, a very good one, and I would go upstairs and start painting. And I thought the best way for me, if, if I'm going to survive, I'm going to need attention, I'm going to need to be known, you've got to have publicity. Um, the best way was not to be the watercolorist and oil painter that I'd been focusing on, because everyone did that. If I was to get attention and, and give myself a chance of survival, I would go back to what I'd become very fascinated by, which was egg tempera. I knew of several egg tempera painters. I knew some of the early Renaissance stuff was egg tempera. And I also knew that no, no one else in New Zealand was doing it. So there would be a chance of me getting some um, media curiosity if I did egg tempera. And I'd done several paintings teaching myself egg tempera. I'd done them in, when I was at college in Christchurch and things like that in 1970. In fact, I'd sent one. I finished a painting called Peninsula Storm in egg tempera. And I sent it up to um, Auckland Art Gallery to an exhibition, that an invitation went out for young contemporaries. And I sent this painting up and it got rejected in 1970, which was very disappointing. Anyway, um, egg tempera I'd looked at closely when I was in England and I in, in British Library and so on. I read all the treatises I could on it. So I knew all about it. There's not much to know, actually. Well, apart from it's very difficult to work with. Well, debatable. It's different. Hmm. But it's a water-based medium, and it suits the people like me who always love to draw. It's not a, it's not a great medium for the expressionist, um, wild, extravagant, gestural person. I'm, I'm not that person, much to my regret. But I've always loved careful observation and drawing and so on. I've always been a drawer. And egg tempera is a water-based medium that you sort of draw with, with fine sable brushes, etc. It's no good at big spaces. You can't use big brushes. Anyway, I, I decided that I would come back and be an egg tempera painter. And I was in the middle of my first return efforts uh, upstairs doing a still life on a card table in my bedroom just to get back into the habit of painting egg tempera. And I'd been home perhaps two weeks. Memory has it as about 10 days. It was in May. I got home on about the 24th of May, just almost exactly for my birthday, 1974. And within, a, within about 10 days, I'm upstairs in my bedroom. Dad's gone off to work, it's morning. Mum's downstairs pottering away, and I hear a knock at the door. And I thought it was Mr. Barnard, the vegetable man, who used to come round every Wednesday, and <laughs> Mum would buy um, vegetables and fruit off him. But she talked away. I could hear her. I was upstairs, and she was downstairs at the front door. And soon she came upstairs and knocked on my, on my bedroom door and said, there's someone here to see you. 
And here, standing in my bedroom doorway, was a very suave young man in a suit, um, extremely dapper. I had no idea who he was. And to, to cut a long story short, when he left a couple of hours later, he had bought, he had offered to buy the painting I was doing, which wasn't even finished. He left me a check for $160 for it. And he said, he was from Auckland, and he had been in the art world for a long time. I didn't know who he was. Um, and he was, he had just been seconded to start an art dealership in Auckland for a wealthy property developer whose wife was interested in art. And they had employed this gentleman to guide her, really, and to be a director. And they had sent him, because the property developer was wealthy enough, they had sent him on a bit of a excursion around the country to pick up some new names. And he had seen the painting I had, had rejected in Auckland in 1970 at the Auckland Art Gallery, where he was exhibitions officer. And he was Peter Webb. And it was Peter Webb standing in my doorway. And when he left two hours later, Peter had promised that, that he would buy everything I finished. He was working for a chap called Barrington Cramp. And the gallery was called the Lee Cramp Gallery at Custom Street East. And Cramp was the money and Peter was the art. Hmm. And he had also pulled in another mate from the Govett Brewster in New Plymouth called Bob Ballard, who was an American. And they had been enticed by Cramp to become the dealers in the gallery for the entertainment of his wife, Lee. And they were determined to make something of this opportunity. It was just new. It was one of the new... There weren't many dealers. There was um, Barry... Jeez, um, I'm going to forget the name. There were, there were a couple already starting in Auckland, late 60s. This, this was 1974. Um, what the hell was the name? Barry, I forget the name. It'll oh, Barry Lett. Barry Lett, yeah. He was the main one. McCleavy was still, I think, probably dealing out of his out of his lounge or bedroom in Wellington. But there were very few. And here was here was this Norman Kirk, New Zealand is worthy on its own in the world. We we have to rate our own and respect our own and it doesn't you know, the cultural cringe doesn't need to apply, etc. anymore. And Peter promised to buy everything I finished with no strings attached. He didn't say, but they have to be landscapes or they have to be this size or they have to be this, that, or that. He said, no conditions whatsoever. He, the simple message from him was, you finish them, we'll buy them. So you're off and running. And he did, yeah. Hmm. Everything I finished, he bought. And they used to fly me, this was within, within a fortnight of me arriving home not knowing what was going to happen, but just fingers crossed. And 
that's why I have no hesitation at all and no embarrassment about saying you've got to get lucky. Mm. You've got to get lucky. If I was still on that boat floating home from Singapore, I would have missed him. Um, you know, for all sorts of reasons, I, I got lucky. Mm. Anyway, um, every time I finish two paintings, it's, it's, I know this is a long story, um, but it's, it's a sort of rare New Zealand art story in a sense. I can see that now. Um, I was 25 or 26 or something. And I suddenly had to get serious. Here's this guy giving me an Auckland opportunity. It was, it was short-circuiting the, the plan, the five-year Soviet plan to get to Auckland, you know. Shit, I'm going to have to really be a real painter now, not a part-timer. What am I going to do? So I decided I would go into Central because I'd had these vivid dreams when I was in London, uh, dreams about Central. And my brother gave me a car I, I didn't have any money. Um, oh, the, I did have the cheque from Peter, $160. Anyway, when, I must tell you this, is quite funny. When Dad came home at lunchtime, Peter had just left, leaving me this cheque, 160 bucks. And we sat down at the kitchen table for a hot dinner, as, as we always did, and she said to Dad, you never believe what happened this morning. You know, this guy came from Auckland, for God's sake, and, and he says he's going to buy everything I do. He's even bought the one that I haven't finished. And I said to Dad, look, he's left a cheque. Here's the cheque. And Dad said, oh, you better give that to me, son. I'll, I'll, get, it, I'll get it looked into. And, you know, he said he's, you know, he's from Auckland. It could be... Uh, Completely untrustworthy. Yeah. <laughs> could be dodgy. Anyway, he took the cheque away. And about a week later, he came home and he said, oh, I remember that check that guy from Auckland came? He said, oh, the bank rang me this morning. He, he said, oh, you know, Dad had said, oh, I'll, I'll get the bank to look into it. He said, they came back this morning and said, there's plenty of money there. You sound, looks like you're all right. <laughs> carry on. Yeah, carry on. Anyway, um, I went into Central and, and down the Otago Peninsula, my sort of favourite haunts, the two places. I started driving around in my brother's car. And then eventually... Within a couple of months, I decided that I'd better go and live in Central. It was winter. Um, dear friends had a house in Naseby, which they offered me to rent for $5 a week. And I went stayed there on my own in winter. So I went from being miserable in London to being miserable in, in Naseby within <laughs> a very short amount of time. But I, was, but I at least had access to things. And that's when the first of the Wedderburn paintings started, because I was driving around sitting freezing to death um, in, in sort of thin coats and so on. So was that that first period where you started discovering what would be a lifelong subject? Yeah, yeah, it was really. Although I'd done some in Cromwell while I was teaching, mm -hmm. but nothing like the Maniototo. Um, I'd had these dreams about the Maniototo, and I don't know why, but they came unbidden. And I went back and, and did them and did those first Wedderburn in the snow and that sort of thing. Um, and did them in egg tempera. And the, I was going to come back to the story that whenever I, the, the deal with Peter and Bob was that whenever I finished two paintings, I would ring them in Auckland 
and they would send me down in the post air tickets. This is before anything digital or electronic, you've know, got, got to remember, NAC. And tickets would arrive in the post for me to get on a plane out at Dunedin Airport and fly to Auckland carrying the two paintings that I'd just finished wrapped in the Otago Daily Times. What scale were these works? Oh, they would have been um, six, seven hundred wide. Yeah. Nothing very big, because it's egg tempera and it's, you know, you can't do big spaces that, that quickly. Um, Carry on. So Carry I was wrapping them in the Otago Daily Times and uh, carrying them on my knee, which the hostesses and so on were all very happy for me to do. Um, and mum and dad and I had terrible trepidation about what to ask for them. You know, how, what were they worth? And we, we had these, I can remember sitting around the Formica, Formica table in the kitchen at home with the, a newly finished painting propped up against the fridge or something. Saying, shit, what are we going to ask for this? Do you think $300 is too much? Dad would say, oh, you can't be greedy, son. You've got to leave something for the next man. And I, I'd agree. And we sort of $250, $200, $300 for a major one sort of thing. So full of fear and nervousness, I'd fly to Auckland with these paintings wrapped up on my knee. And Peter and Bob would meet me at the airport in a taxi with dark glasses on, <laughs> suits. And here's me, you know, from Dunedin and Naseby and so on. And we would travel into, Dine into Auckland, to Custom Street East, to the Lee Cramp Gallery and, and in these damn taxis. It felt, it felt like I was in the Mafia, being shipped around. And ceremoniously unwrap the Otago Daily Times packages, and here were these egg tempera paintings. And Peter would say, what do you want for that? And I'd say, well, we're thinking maybe $300. What do you want for that? How does 275 sound? Write the check, out the door. No questions asked. Back in a cab, off to the airport. Yep. Fly home with this check. And this happened for a year. How yeah. many paintings do you think you delivered in that time? 22. 22? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, wait, two at a time? Yep. Whenever there was two finished, I rang them. Yeah. So the first, they kept everything. And um, because they owned them, they held on to them. And within a year, he had enough for an exhibition. Mm. So he met me in May or early June 1974. And in March 1975, it was the Auckland Arts Festival, and they decided to put on the solo show of my stuff in the Arts Festival. And being um, very good, astute promoters, they gave it a lot of push. And it sold out on the opening night. He had them all pre-sold, basically. And and he made sure that it got on the front page of the newspaper. You attend this opening? Yes, yeah. sure. I did. How but was I, that for a young lady from Naseby? I attended with my mother and sister. We all flew up together. And I had no idea what was in store, but they were there for support. And when we turned up at the exhibition, the, the gallery was absolutely crowded and there was a security guard on the door and he wouldn't let us in. 
because I didn't have an invitation. And I, I remember knocking on the window of the Lee Cramp Gallery on Custom Street East and trying to get Peter's attention, saying, this guy won't let us in. You know. Anyway, we got in. But um, it was amazing. It was, it was dream stuff, obviously. And no one could have wished for a start like that. Mm. And that is part one of this conversation with Graham. Please join me for episode three of The Good Oil to hear Graham talk about how he approaches painting. Graham chooses to not have dealer representation, but you can contact him via his website, grahamsydney.co.nz. Thanks for listening. Ka kite anō.